begin our reading here in chapter 1, at verse 1. And we'll read through verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. God's inspired and inerrant word, be seated as we look to God's throne again, seeking his blessing upon the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, you've shown us deep things in your word. You have revealed yourself in mighty ways especially in your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that the Spirit of Christ would abide with us as we consider this significant portion of your word. We ask for the Spirit's help to give us understanding, to enlighten our eyes, to give insight to our minds concerning your holy word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. While the other gospel writers, or rather other gospel writers, not all the gospel writers, but um, two of the synoptic gospel writers give us detailed accounts 
of the birth of Jesus, John touches upon the birth of Christ indirectly and ever so briefly. Though our text is quite short, if we measure it by words, it's quite long if we measure it by the substance of its contents. In the first several verses of John chapter 1, the evangelist describes the word who was in the beginning with God. This word is a person. He was in the beginning with God, and he created all things, John writes. Uh, the word, therefore, is divine. Uh, he is a distinct person of the Holy Trinity. John proceeds to inform us, uh, inform us that though the word came into the world, the world didn't know him, and not even his own people recognized him as their creator. They didn't receive him. But those who did recognize the word and receive him as their creator, he gave them the right to become children of God. That is, those who believe in his name. The advent, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ These are important matters in the life of uh, God's people, in the life of uh, the church of Jesus Christ, and often uh, the focus of the church's celebration of Christmas is Jesus' advent as a baby, which is all fine and good. But if that's as far as it goes, we've really missed the point of Christ's advent, and we've missed the point of his birth as a baby. We need to know what it means that Christ came to earth in, uh, as a baby. We, we need to know why that's significant. And so having spoken of Christ's coming into the world in general terms in verses 1 through 13, John describes the words incarnation in verse 14, namely what the incarnation consists of and why the incarnation is important. Those are the two things that we'll consider tonight, the nature of the incarnation and the significance of the incarnation, the nature and significance of the incarnation of the word. First then, the nature of the incarnation, what the incarnation consists of. The phrase, the word became flesh, encapsulates it. The word is a divine title became flesh indicates the word's humanity. Simply put, 
then the divine word, the eternally begotten Son who had always dwelt with God, became man. But notice, John doesn't simply say the word became man or the word took on human nature. He says the word became flesh. This is a significant biblical word. To say that he became flesh is a more forceful way of saying that he became man. To say that he became flesh uh, means uh, that not, not merely, as in some cases does, it doesn't, it doesn't refer to uh, sinful nature. It does in some cases in the scriptures, but in other cases, uh, it simply refers to the mortal nature of man, the mortal nature of humanity. In John 1.14, flesh, obviously, speaking of the divine word, refers not to man's corrupt nature, but to man's mortality. It refers to man's frail and perishing condition. Isaiah 40, verse 6, the prophet writes, All flesh is grass. That's what's in view here when John writes that the Word became flesh. So when John says the Word became flesh, he means that although although there's a great distance between the eternal glory of the immortal word and the mortality of human flesh, nevertheless, the Son of God stooped to take upon himself that flesh and became subject to its many frailties, including the miseries of this life and death itself. Paul profoundly captures that. Uh, this uh, wondrous doctrine of the incarnation of the Word in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 6. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. The infinite became finite. The transcendent became imminent. The invisible became tangible. That which was beyond the reach of man's feeble mind could now be grasped in the person of the incarnate word. There are three central characteristics to the orthodox doctrine of the incarnation. Unity, distinctiveness, and constancy. First, the unity of the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. During the Christological controversies of the ancient church. Some acknowledge Christ to be God and man, having two natures, but then insisted that there were two persons, 
denying the unity of these two natures. Orthodoxy maintains that when the word became flesh, there was a, a union of these two perfect natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. The two natures are so united in the one person of Christ that he is fully God and fully man. The unity of the two natures. Secondly, the distinction of the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. Others in the ancient church controversies maintained that Christ was one person but denied the distinctiveness of the two natures mingling this, the, these two natures together. Orthodoxy insists that the unity of the person doesn't hinder the two natures from remaining distinct. The divine nature retains whatever is pe peculiar to it. The human nature retains whatever is peculiar to it. They must never be mingled together or confused. The unity, the distinctiveness, and third, the constancy of the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. Still others in the ancient church thought that the divine word, or the logos, that's the Greek for word, the logos displaced, uh, displaced rather the human soul in Christ, leaving him less than fully man, or that Christ departed from Jesus so that when he died, before he died, he was no longer Christ on the cross, but merely the man, Jesus. Orthodoxy asserts that when God became man, when the word became flesh, he did not for a single moment cease to be God. Now, to be sure, his deity was veiled at times and unveiled at other times during his earthly ministry. There were times when he chose not to exercise his divine knowledge. Not even the Son of Man, Jesus said, knows the timing of that day, the last day, the final day, the day of God's judgment. And there were times when he chose not to exercise his divine power. He didn't come down from the cross or direct legions of angels to obliterate his enemies. But at other times, he clearly manifested his divine knowledge and power. He knew the thoughts of men. He walked on water. He commanded the winds and the waves. He raised the dead. On and on uh, we could go. The important point is that there was never an instant when he laid aside his deity and only became man. Moreover, when the word became flesh, he never ceased from that point forward to be man, to be fully man. If we insist, as the Bible does, that the two natures of Christ are un un united yet distinct and permanent, we avoid a whole host of theological ditches 
into which heretics have fallen in the history of the Christian church and stay on the straight and narrow path of orthodoxy. There is a constant, undivided, unmingled union of the two perfect natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. The only Redeemer, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the Son of God, took on these two natures, God and man, and continues to be God and man forever. Today in heaven, at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ has two natures, being fully God and fully man forever. Among all the other creatures of heaven, holy angels and disembodied souls, and in the midst of God's throne, in the midst of the other two persons of the Trinity, Jesus dwells as the unique God-man, the divine Son with blood pulsing in his veins. The nature of the incarnation, what the incarnation consists of. Secondly, we want to understand the significance of the incarnation, why the incarnation is important. In the first place, it brought God near to man in the person of Jesus Christ. We read here in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, indicating Christ's eternal divinity, uh, which is beyond our ability to comprehend. In 1.14, John says, the Word became flesh, marking the beginning of Christ's humanity, which brings him within our grasp, within the realm of our understanding. He became something tangible to us. Uh, he came to reveal the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said? Uh, that when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And we also read in uh, that first verse of chapter 1, and the word was God, in, ref in reference to uh, the eternal trinity, which is in itself incomprehensible. And in verse 14, we read the word dwelt among us, indicating that God is now near to man. That word translated dwelt literally, uh, in verse 14, literally means to live in a tent. There is in this phrase an allusion to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle of Israel in the wilderness, which foreshadows the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Many things about the tabernacle point us to the word become flesh. The, tab the tabernacle was a temporary provision until the temple was constructed, moving about with God's people from place to place, 
Christ's stay on earth was brief, 33 years, and he was never long in one place. He had nowhere to lay his head during his earthly ministry, the gospel writers tell us. The tabernacle came into use during Israel's wilderness pilgrimage. From the cradle to the grave, Christ dwelt in wilderness conditions, a cattle trough for a cradle in the manger, driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God himself to be tempted by the devil. In the end, a borrowed tomb for his grave. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. In the midst of Israel's camp, between uh, the wings of the cherubim, upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, God made his throne among his people during the 33 years of Christ's life on earth. He tabernacled among men. God had his dwelling place in Palestine, the land of God's people. The tabernacle was a place where God met man. Christ was the meeting place between God and man. No one comes to the Father but by him, John 14, 6 says. He's the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. The tabernacle was the place of worship. That's where the pious of Israel brought their sacrifices to God. Through Christ, we offer a sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13.15 says. In him and by him alone, we can worship the Father and have access, free and bold access, to the throne of grace. The tabernacle was the place where upon the brazen altar in the outer court, animals were slain and blood was shed for the atonement of sin. Christ fulfilled the typical significance of that brazen altar. The body in which he tabernacled was nailed to the cross. The cross was the altar upon which the Lamb of God was slain, where his blood was shed, where complete atonement was made for sin. In terms of the significance of the incarnation, first, it brought God near to man in the person of the word incarnate, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we're welcomed into the close, familial relationship with God the Father. As John writes in Verse 12 here in chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But then secondly, 
the incarnation made God known to man in the person of Jesus Christ. What was once concealed became observable. When John says we beheld his glory in our text, he's, he's making a contrast between beholding and not beholding, between observing and not observing the glory of God. God manifested his glory in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, but that glory was only readily observable to the, uh, to the, to the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. It wasn't observable to all. When the Word became flesh, God manifested, God made known, God made observable His glory through Him. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. What John means by glory, by the glory of the Word, is His supreme excellency. We can speak of Christ's glory in terms of several aspects. First, there's his essential glory, which refers to such things as the supernatural birth itself, which manifests the deity of the word. Secondly, there's Christ's official glory, which was exhibited on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, there's an apparent reference to that event here in verse 14. The word glory is the link to the transfiguration where the gospel account says that a bright cloud overshadowed, the glory cloud overshadowed Jesus, Peter, James, and John who were with him. Peter writes about that. In his, in his second epistle, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, We weren't following cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I, I am well pleased. And Peter says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So there's an essential glory, there's an official glory, and then there's Christ's spiritual glory. He was full of grace and truth. Now, these words, of course, apply to Christ's character. Christ was full of grace and truth, but here they refer to the spiritual riches that Christ the Word brought with him in the Incarnation. This becomes apparent in verses 16 and 17. He became 
Uh, He came with the fullness of the gospel of grace in contrast to the grace of the law of Moses. He came full of truth, not in types, figures, and shadows of the law. Indeed, what a glorious grace we behold in the wondrous descent from heaven's throne to Bethlehem's manger. It would have been an infinite condescension for him to come down to earth and to reign as a king. But to to appear in weakness, to become flesh as a helpless baby, that's simply beyond the scope of our comprehension. May we never lose a sense of wonder over the infinite condescension of the only begotten Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation brought God near to man in the person of Jesus Christ. It made God known to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, it made possible for believers comfort in this world and eternal life in the next, in the person of Jesus Christ. Our mediator, the word who became flesh, can sympathize with us in our humanity because he's a man. He's fully man. He can sympathize with us in temptation. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things, yet without sin. He can sympathize with us in our suffering. He underwent all the miseries of this life. In grief, he wept over the death of his beloved friend, Lazarus. In hunger, in poverty, in wrestlings over divine providence, in every aspect of your humanity, Jesus, your great high priest, the word become flesh, sympathizes with you. And yet at the same time, he can deal with the Father in our behalf because he's very God. The union of God and man in the one person of Jesus Christ gives infinite value to his righteousness imputed to believers. It's the righteousness of the one who is God. And man, his atoning blood shed for sinners on the cross is the blood of one who is God as well as man. His resurrection, not merely as a man, but as the glorious God-man, enables our mediator, enables 
this word incarnate to deal with the Father, to intercede for us, to mediate for us in the full spectrum of our Christian experience. The word became flesh and dwelt among us in order to bring God near to us and to make God's glorious grace and truth known to us. May we never lose our appreciation for the constant, undivided union of the two perfect natures of the one person of Jesus Christ. For this is what gives infinite value to his role as mediator and qualifies him to be the Savior that sinners need. The 17th century hymn writer Paul Gerhardt has well captured the essence of the Word incarnate, of the incarnation of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. God is man to deliver. His dear Son now is one with our blood forever. Amen. What wondrous things you have done, O Lord our God, and what wondrous things you've shown us in your word. Deep things, wondrous things, glorious things, having to do with the word incarnate, your only begotten Son and our Savior, our mediator, our beloved Christ. Fill us, O God, with wonder. Don't ever let us stop marveling at the wondrous nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Never let us stop in our thinking at the advent and the birth of Jesus as a baby. Help us, O Lord, to draw the significant conclusions that we need to draw from this all-important doctrine that we might walk in faithfulness before you through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.